0: happy lord 's day it is a it 's good to see you guys hope you 're doing well, um, um, we'll, we'll be, we we 'll be in Romans six so you can turn there now we 'll jump in there in a few minutes. Some of you guys know me a little bit now, and some of you guys know that i 'm a baseball coach that 's my day job i 've been in and around the game of baseball my entire life um, I mean, I, I think from the age of 4 to 33, I haven't missed a season as either a player or a coach. It's been my world. And, and every team that I've ever been a part of um, has had an identity, what they call in sports, a, a culture. I've been on some pretty awful teams. I've coached some pretty bad teams as well. Um, and, and, and usually there comes a time... In the season when the culture becomes let's just have fun Um, and then you realize how hard that is when you're getting killed every game Um, I I, I try to I try to coach teams now with an identity and just playing the game the right way Um, we can't necessarily control the wins and losses so I want our culture to be about working hard um, executing things like this but there's one team that I've played on that had an identity a culture unlike anything that I had ever experienced. Um, and, and that was when I was in college at the University of Oklahoma. Um, there was one thing and only one thing that mattered at OU, and that was winning. Winning was everything. We had practice shirts, that had the n- number 540 on it. And we would, we, we would touch a sign on the wall every practice that said 540. Um, because Norman, Oklahoma was 540 miles away from Omaha, Nebraska, where they hosted the College World Series. This was the goal. So everything, was, everything we did was focused on this one thing. It, it, it defined us. It was the air we breathed. It was, our, it was our culture. So, for example, my senior year, <clears throat> we started off the season 16-0. and We were number one in the nation. Things were going well. And then we lost one game to Arkansas Little Rock. 16-1, and no big deal, right? Wrong. <laughs> After the game, <clears throat> we met in the clubhouse for over an hour. Chairs lined up. And Coach just berated us. I mean, he would go one by one. Sometimes objects were thrown in these meetings, clipboards were broken, and everyone's self-esteem was crushed. But the main message after that loss was that our performance on the field was not a reflection of who we were. We needed to wake up. That was his message. You don't lose to Arkansas Little Rock. You just don't because you're much better than them. That's what he told us. Be who you are. Play better. Now, now, even though I, I looking back, I disagree with so much of, 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 of our coach's philosophy and how he communicated and how he treated us. Um, but he wasn't wrong we had a much more talented team than Arkansas Little Rock. And we did not play like who we were, the better team. We were not playing out of our identity. And, and this, this concept of identity, right, it, it flows out into so many areas of our lives. right. I mean, think about your own family identity. What is the culture in your home? What's the culture at work or amongst your friend groups? When theologian and ethicist Dr. Russell Moore adopted his, his sons from a, a tough orphanage in Russia, he, he knew his boys were starting to understand and live out of their identity as his children when they began to trust him and his wife their new parents for something as basic as their next meal more in his book adopted for life said we knew the boys had acclimated to our home that they trusted in us when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs they knew there would be another meal coming and they wouldn't have to fight for scraps like they did at the orphanage this was the new normal they were beginning to live out of who they already were Now, now week after week, as we've been in the book of Romans, we've seen time and time again, we've been reminded constantly of our identity. Paul's repeated himself often, justified by faith alone. We are righteous before God because of Christ and Christ alone. And we continue to see just how precious the gospel of grace is. And grace alone really is. But if we're honest, by Thursday afternoon, it doesn't always feel so precious. Living out of our identity as Christians is not for the faint of heart. We all know how quickly the, the idols of our culture can come and invade our hearts and, and leave us empty. Empty our investments are down, or our jobs aren't giving us the satisfaction that we need, or if only I had the new iPhone, the new Tesla, the new house, more money, maybe a better family, Are you fill in the blank. The truths we hear on Sunday can often be out of sight, out of mind when the week begins. It's like the saying goes, the longest journey we're ever going to make is the journey from head to heart. I mean, if I were to ask you guys, what is your job as Christians? I think something we see all over scripture and many of us would answer with is conformity to Christ, right? Looking more like Jesus, being who we already are. In Christ, the, the righteousness of God. But if you're anything like me, isn't this the frustration of the Christian life? We can hear the truth about our identity in Christ on Sunday morning, rejoicing and resting in the gospel. But by Thursday, we're at our wits' end. Discouraged, falling back into the same sin cycles, struggling to see and feel hear God believe God not living up to our status as righteous children of God and then we come to Romans 6 where Paul says to these Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome and he says to us I have some medicine for you conformity to Christ is our job as Christians And Paul, in these 14 verses in Romans 6 this morning, will show us that Jesus' followers are the walking dead. That Jesus' followers are the walking dead. But before you check out, because you're thinking of that old popular show, The Walking Dead, and the last thing you need right now in your life is to walk around like a zombie. Maybe you already feel like that. Hear me out. Paul will actually show us that this is a good thing. That this is the abundant life. Jesus' followers are the walking dead. Because as the dead walk in Christ, they live a new life in a new land. So if you're not already there, Romans 6 is our text. We'll jump into verse 1. This is the word of God. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? We'll stop here for a minute. The question Paul is asking is a question that he has heard over and over and over again in his ministry. Remember, Paul's the the grace over law guy. And and in verse 1, he's giving a response to what he just said in verse 20 of chapter 5. He said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the question he's posing here is basically, since the nature of this grace is super abounding grace, shouldn't we uh, indulge in sin? Shouldn't we indulge in sin that we actually make this grace abound even more? think about how how ridiculous this logic is. It's it's, it's just bad math. Picture a dad who, who, who just forgave his son. The, the dad told his son, no football in the house with friends. And then he leaves home and, and his son grabs the neighborhood kids. And they come into the home and play some football in the formal living room. Only to break the window. To his utter shock, when dad comes home, he totally forgives him. Grace Grace, grace, the, the, the question in our text this morning would by, be like this kid thinking, hey, I actually want to do more wrong so I can enjoy more of dad's forgiveness, right? Dumb kid, <laughs> bad idea, right? This is what's going on in Paul's question in verse one of our passage this morning. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Look at verse 2. Paul says, by no means. Or or another translation, absolutely not. Or if I was a translator, heck no, bro. And and listen to Paul as he gives his reasons why. Verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Paul here uses baptism as as a shorthand for the conversion experience. Paul is talking about water baptism, but he, he, he's not saying that baptism in and of itself is what unites us to Christ but rather baptism as a summary of what has happened internally, namely a new creation or conversion. This is what unites us to Christ. And so, of course, water baptism is part of that. It's going public with our faith. But ultimately, Paul is saying we don't sin that grace might increase because we've been changed. We've been changed. Something cosmic has taken place. In conversion, also known as faith, repentance, regeneration, baptism, we have been given an entirely new identity. Sinning would be contrary to our new identity. So no, we don't sin that grace may abound. Absolutely not, Paul says. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of these verses. He says, so what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've, left the, if we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. We also must see the purpose here, Paul's aim in this passage. Paul's going to get really theological here in a minute, so so get ready. Strap on your seatbelts. But theology for Paul is never an end in and of itself, but rather a means to an end from head to heart. Look at Paul's aim in this passage, verse 4 again. In order that, and then he later says, we too might walk in, in newness of life, a new life in a new land for God's new creation, the church, Jew and Gentile, you and me. Verse 5 now expands what he's already mentioned. So look down with me at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Before we continue on in in, in Paul's argument, we we do have to get a little theological. Welcome to the book of Romans. I, I can't continue on in our passage without speaking on the doctrine that theologians call union with Christ. If we're going to understand the rest of what Paul is saying, we must understand Paul's great medicine for Christian living. It's all over our passage this morning. Look at verse 3. Baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. Verse 4, buried with him into death. Verse 5, united with him in a death like his. United with him in a resurrection like like his. Verse 6, crucified with him. Verse 8, if we've died with him, we will live with him. If you're a follower of Christ this morning, you have been united to Jesus. You may still be thinking, cool, but what does this have to do with my daily life? And I'd say everything. So first, what does this doctrine, union with Christ, even mean? Before I give you my best definition at union with Christ, I want you to listen to some theologians express the importance for this often neglected doctrine. Doctrine. So I'll start with John Murray. He says, nothing is more central or more basic than union with Christ. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. John Owen says, union with Christ is the greatest, most honorable and glorious of all graces that we are made partakers of. Thomas Goodwin says, being in Christ and united to him is the fundamental constitution of a Christian. Robert Letham says union with Christ is right at the center of the Christian doctrine of salvation. Lane Tipton said there are no benefits of the gospel apart from union with Christ. Todd Billings' union with Christ is theological shorthand for the gospel itself. Why then is a doctrine of this magnitude often neglected, left out? I mean... The Apostle Paul himself uses the phrase, in Christ, or with Christ. right? Speaking of this union more than 160 times in his 13 letters. One pastor theologian, Kevin DeYoung, says, Union with Christ is the greatest doctrine you've never heard. I think this has to be owing to the mysterious aspects of union with Christ. Right? We like doctrines that make Sense. A plus B equals C. Justification by faith alone, for example. Easily explained, good news, no mystery, let's go. Union with Christ, on the other hand, is not only mysterious, like the Apostle Paul says in Colossians when he says, This mystery, which is Christ in you, but it's also mystical. John Calvin says, the indwelling of Christ in our hearts, that mystical union is the highest degree of importance. So what is union with Christ? In a nutshell, it can be defined as Christ in you and you in Christ. Christ in you and you in Christ. In Christ Henry Skogel says, Union with Christ is a union of a soul with God, a real participation of the divine nature through the indwelling holy Spirit, we partake in the inner life of our triune God that 's pretty gnarly, right? I texted a friend of mine who who 's doing His PhD on this doctrine, union with Christ, to to give me the most easy understanding definition. I mean, and he said this, I thought it was helpful. I'm in Christ like I'm in a house, so I get all of who he is and all the blessings that come with him. You in Christ, Christ in you. When I think of you in Christ, I, I think of a friend of mine from high school. Her name was Katie. Katie was smart, she was pretty, she was popular, but she was also a pretty ordinary girl. Until after high school, she landed a job with Disneyland where she would become Snow White. Now, again, before she put on the Snow White costume at work, she was just Katie. But the minute she became Snow White, she had all the benefits of being Snow White. Namely, thousands of kids wanting to take pictures with her. That's union with Christ. You in Christ. We get all of who he is and all the blessings that come with him. Christ in you, on the other hand... Like one theologian brought up, makes you more like Spider-Man. Something alien to you from outside of you has entered into you, he said, and changed your very nature. You now have power that you did not have before. Transformation into your full humanity begins to take place as Christ lives in you. He begins to make you look more like himself. So as we continue to work through the rest of this passage, let's keep this mystery in our minds. Union with Christ. Christ in you and you in Christ, I believe, has the potential to revolutionize our lives. In our passage this morning, Paul affirms in verse 5 what he's already implied in verse 4. The Christian has been united with Christ in his death. But now he also adds this implication through Christ's resurrection. Right? In verse 4, because Christ has been raised and we are in him, we too have been raised. We live out the resurrection life now. Or as Paul says, we walk in the newness of life. In verse 5, he adds another implication. Look down at verse 5 again. It just keeps getting better. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We shall. This is future. So presently through union with Christ, we have been raised with him. Paul says live out of that identity. Walk in resurrection power now and in the future We will be united with him in a resurrection like his redemption complete. Paul continues. Look at verse six. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. They have been crucified with Jesus. We are no longer alive, RP. We are the walking dead. Mark explained last week that that we're either in Adam or we're in Christ. If we've repented of our sins, if we've turned to Christ as our only hope in life and death, then we're in Christ. If you haven't, do it today. In Christ, our old self was crucified with Jesus when he went to the cross and died for our sin. In Adam, our master was sin, and we were enslaved to it. But when you died with Christ, you were given a new master, purchased from sin, brought to God. And as our text says, as Jesus lives to God, so we... Like a new master. So we, with a new master, consider ourselves dead to sin. And we likewise live to God. Red Bull may give you wings. And I had an energy drink this morning, it really helped. But union with Christ transfers you to a new dominion, to a new realm, a new life in a new world land it's not that you're in Adam and in Christ and let's just see how this goes you were in Adam you're now in Christ the truest thing about yourself if you're a Christian your essence is alive to God your old self crucified with Jesus we need to let that truth sink in Now, some have have taken the, the truths of this reality to mean that we can live perfect now. At this side of eternity, because we're now in Christ, Christian maturity can mean perfection, sinlessness. And they totally miss the not yet aspect of this already not yet reality. They miss the fact that we are both body soul body and soul. Yes, it is true that in our essence, our truest self, we are in Christ. God truly has taken out our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh, dead to sin and alive to God. But as we will see in the last portion of our text, we do still share solidarity with Adam. So look down with me at verse 12. 12 through 14. and Christ is in us. We still live in these mortal bodies. Romans 7 in a couple weeks is going to make that really clear. The most frustrating thing about the Christian life, in my opinion, is the Christian life. Being in Christ and yet sharing solidarity with Adam in our mortal bodies. This tension is real i heard a good illustration a while back explaining the christian imagine a a poison warehouse a poison warehouse has just been purchased the new company that bought this poison warehouse is a clean oxygen center though the new ceo doesn't share an office with the old owner right that would be weird The new company, unless they tear down and rebuild a new warehouse, must deal with the effects of operating a clean oxygen center out of the old poison warehouse. This is the Christian. You are fully in Christ. And yet, you live in the tension, the the frustration of this mortal body, the flesh. Full and final redemption comes only when we get our resurrection bodies. So what, in the end of this passage, does Paul want these Christians and us to do? Kill sin. Like like John Owen famously said, kill sin or it will kill you. Paul has labored in this text with all these indicatives. What is true about us because of our union with Christ. Now he he finishes our passage with some imperatives. With some commands. Do not let sin reign. Do not let sin reign. Instead present yourself to God. Your new master. And take orders from him. When we sin, we are lying about who we are. When we sin, we are lying about who we are. Jesus' followers are the walking dead. Though I love reading theology, my favorite favorite form of learning theology is through rap, hip-hop. Right? Um, artists like Beautiful Eulogy or Jackie Hill Perry or Shai Lin can pack deep theology into like a three or four minute song. Well, this week, as I was reading one commentary, commentary, this, this scholar, this Australian scholar, Michael Bird, decided to write a freestyle rap for his summary of this passage here in Romans 6. I thought it was so good I needed to share it. Huh? <laughs> I'll wrap it <laughs> by faith. We're righted with the Messiah united. Sin is defied since I'm co-crucified. I serve a new sire dunked in the Messiah, dying and rising. No more death tyrannizing. <laughs> Let us be church who we already are. This is what my coach at OU was trying to get us to believe. The problem was in in sports, you're only as good as your last performance. And quite frankly, we weren't that good. Our whole season was a roller coaster. We eventually got eliminated in the first round by Oral Roberts of all schools. In Christ, we really are something because we're in him. Him. We have a completely new identity. We are Christ-enclosed Christians. You are a Christ-enclosed Christian. So I guess the question now is, is what are you going to do with all this? One response could be, well, that, that, that was a nice sermon, Rick. Now back to real life. And I get it. That's my struggle every week. In rankin Wilborn's wonderful book, Union with Christ, he says, union with Christ is the secret to communion with Christ. So maybe the focus of this passage was union with Christ, heady, mysterious theology. But I believe the the, the implication of union with Christ is communion, which will be our application. So I, I challenge you this week, to commune with Christ. Maybe change it up a little bit from your normal routines. Think about Christ in you and you in Christ as you engage with God this week. So four ways we can commune with Christ in application. There's a lot more than four, but I'm just going to give you four. First, we read his word. Maybe you've thrown the towel in long ago on your, on your reading plan and you're just waiting for January to get back into Genesis. Read John 15 this week and realize that you can do nothing unless you abide in Christ. Have that mindset even as you read his word and understand that, that the spirit of Christ, the one that inspired the scriptures, lives in you. Second, prayer. Praying is hard. It's a habit we have to form. Uh, the, the Puritans would say, Pray until you pray. Mother Teresa once said, We learn to pray by praying. Pray this week with an understanding that through the Holy Spirit, you are participating in the inner life of our triune God. Prayer is not boring. In Christ. Third. Commune with God weekly. On the Lord's day like you guys are right now. The Sunday morning liturgies. Like like congregational worship. And preaching continue to recalibrate our hearts. To what is true. The new covenant ordinance of baptism. Reminds us that we are dead in our sin. And alive to God. Remember your baptism. The new covenant ordinance of the Lord's Supper that we take every week is our family meal where we get to taste the gospel together. Sunday morning is a means of grace, and it's not our idea, this is God's idea, and it's a means of grace he uses to grow us up into who we already are. And last, the Christian life is not just you and Jesus, me and Jesus. So commune with God in community this week. This is why GCs are so important. This is why we stress core groups. Because Christ is the head and you alone are not the body. We collectively are the body and we need each other more than we realize. Imagine if we, RP, were the walking dead in this city our neighbors our co-workers entire town of parker would take notice of this colony of heaven amidst this county of death let's be who we are a people living a new life in a new land united to christ and united to one another amen let's pray Lord, you are kind. God, thank you for salvation. Thank you for the sending of your Son to not only save us from our sin, to not only bring us to have right standing before you, God, but to bring us into this union with Christ. But I pray That the truths of this doctrine, God, that are a bit theological, would make their way into our hearts. That it would change us. It would change what we do with our time. It would change what we look at with our eyes. It would change how we treat our neighbors. Us in Christ. Christ in us. God, we pray that you would be glorified in our lives.